All right, uh, well, I always start with an invitation to open your Bibles and turn somewhere. So today, the main text will be in Luke chapter 4 in your New Testament. Luke chapter 4, so turn over there. But I did this in the first service as well. I didn't know initially that Tony was, well, I knew he was going to be leading the song, Open Up Our Eyes. I guess I didn't realize what all the the lyrics were in the song. And so right away, the beginning of the song that Tony just led us in uh, is a quote from John, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, which fits perfectly with our topic today. So I, I'm going to kind of pivot for just a second. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, just the second part of verse 4. John writes this, For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So thank you, Tony, for leading us in that song. Uh, and maybe I'll try to reference that again towards the end of this lesson. The, the last couple of weeks, and then today, this is the last week we've been in this series on the temptation in the wilderness, which today we'll use Luke 4 as our main text, but we're, we're talking about temptation. And as I've studied for and prepared for this sermon series, uh, I've come, a lot, come across a lot of resources, and, and something that I discovered recently uh, was a book that was written about 10 years ago by a guy named Todd Hunter, and the name of the book is Our Favorite Sins. What about an enticing title for a book, Our Favorite Sins? And in this book, he shares a survey that he took 10 years ago of uh, scattered out around America, different Americans, asking them uh, about the temptations that they face or that they struggle with. So he gave a list of temptations, and they would put whether or not they, they never struggle with it, sometimes, often, or whatever it may be. So let me share a few of the results from that study of the temptations that most Americans struggle with. 60% said they're, they're tempted and they struggle with procrastination or putting things off. 55% said eating too much, which I've confessed before, that's something that I struggle with. That's a temptation for me. 44% put spending too much time on media. Well, this was 10 years ago, so I imagine the, the percentage is higher and we would add to that social media. 41% said they're tempted with being lazy. 35% said spending more money than they can afford. 26% said gossiping about others. I I imagine that's not truthful. It's got to be around 90% gossiping. I mean, some people are are giving themselves more credit. Uh, 24% said being jealous or envious of others. 18% said viewing sexually explicit material. And 11% said abusing alcohol or drugs. So we're talking about temptation. I just led off, I read off a, a list to you about temptations and sins that people struggle with. And, and so maybe you connect with some of those. And if you're being honest, maybe you could add a few things to the list. But that's not why I'm sharing this with you. The reason I'm sharing this with you are the two questions that followed those initial questions. Because the next question was asked, why do you give in to temptation? of the people that filled out this survey said, I'm not really sure. 50%, half of the people said, I'm not sure why I give in to temptation. And then the next question after that was, do you do anything specific to avoid temptation? 59% said no. So those last two questions, that's what really got my attention. Half of the people surveyed said they're not even sure why they struggle with temptation, and more than half said they don't do anything specific to avoid it. 
So I know we're not perfect. We're all sinners. We know that. We're in need of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus that Doc talked about in the communion thoughts today. We know that. But at the same time, you know, something that Paul deals with in his letters is, should we just keep on sinning so that grace may abound? And Paul would answer that by saying no. We know we're not perfect, but we also we don't, we don't want to just lay down and let the devil just run over us and destroy our lives. So there's, there's got to be some motivation to try to resist, to try to push back. And what I want to do for the next just couple of minutes is share three verses with you from the New Testament before we get into Luke chapter 4. And these verses I'm going to share with you, I have found to be encouraging to me the last couple of weeks, and I want to share them with you. The first one comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, where Paul writes this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I like this verse. If, if you pay close attention to it, in light of the topic of what we've discussed these last few weeks, there's three sentences here in the way we've translated it in English. That word common is used in the first sentence which reminds me that whatever I'm tempted with, whatever temptations you struggle with, it's common. We're not alone in what we struggle with, but what the devil would have us do is to make us feel ashamed, to make us feel like nobody else struggles with this, so let's keep it a secret and let's never confess to anyone, which unconfessed sin can be so damaging to the soul. So Paul reminds us, whatever we're struggling with, it's common. The second sentence, he says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. The NRSV says, beyond what your strength can endure. Well, there's times where it does feel like to me the temptation that I'm facing, the, the trials, the difficulties in life, it does sometimes feel like more than I can bear. But if I trust what the Bible's teaching, I can handle it. It's not beyond what my strength can endure. And then that last sentence is, when you're tempted, God will provide a way out. There's a way out. All right, there's the first verse I wanted to encourage you with. The second verse comes from James chapter 4 and verse 7, where James writes this, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, this past Tuesday night, I, I spoke at the Highway 80 Men's Chapel. I do that once a month. So I shared this verse with the men in that that were present in that chapel service, and uh, after it was over, some of them stuck around to talk to me about the lesson, share some of their own thoughts. And somebody came up to me and he said, you know that passage that you read from James chapter 4? And I said, yeah. And he said, remember, that yes, the devil will flee from you if you resist the devil, but it hinges on the first part, whether or not we're willing to submit to God. So all I said to him was, amen. Yeah, if we live a life in submission to God, the devil will flee from us. And then the third passage I want to encourage you with comes from 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, where Peter writes this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. I like that verse. Peter's telling us God has given us everything that we need to live a godly life, which means God has given us everything that we need to resist temptation. Some of the temptations that I listed at the beginning, temptations that I listed two weeks ago, you get the idea. You know what the temptations are in your own life if you're being honest, but God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. And part of my argument today is that what God has given us 
are the same God-given resources that he gave to Jesus in the wilderness. So if God has given us everything that we need, why have we spent a few weeks now focusing on the devil and focusing on temptation? Wouldn't it be better to just focus on Jesus, focus on love, focus on something that's a little more uh, optimistic or positive or whatever? You know, why focus on the enemy? Well, I think it's important for us to know what we're going up against. If we want to live a godly life, a Christ-centered life, then what are we up against? When I was growing up playing sports, you know, in my younger years, the coaches would mainly have us focus on knowing basic skills, knowing our teammates, and knowing the plays that we were supposed to run. We didn't really know much about the opposing team, but as I got older, especially into high school and the competition intensified, we started receiving scouting reports. Here's a picture of a scouting report. I went up in my attic and I found it. This is from our homecoming game, my senior year, 2002. So the week we played Paris, Paris High School, I received this scouting report, and it's a packet full of, of all of Paris, their players, their positions, their height, their weight, their plays. So when we go into the game, not only do we need to know what we're supposed to do, but we want to know what the enemy is up to as well. That helps us win, which, by the way, I didn't mention this in the first service, but we did, win, we did win this game. And the reason I point that out is because on the second page of that scouting report, circled up there is M. Wicks, which is Matt Wicks. He, he, I, if you know Matt, Matt, I knew Matt from Camp Deer Run, but I played for Greenville. He played for Paris. So I saw him on our scouting report, which I thought was kind of neat. They have him listed at 170 pounds, which he told me he wasn't even close to that. You know, sometimes we exaggerate a little bit. So he was my friend at camp, but on the football field, he was going to be my enemy. We got to know what we're up against. That's why the coaches would give us a scouting report, and, and that's partly why we focused the last few weeks on this temptation in the wilderness. So I want to read it again for the third week in a row. We did Luke two weeks ago. We did Matthew last week. Now we're coming back to Luke today. And as we read, uh, maybe you'll catch something that you haven't caught before. Maybe God will speak to you in a, a fresh way today. But what I want you to pay attention to is how Jesus resists temptation. Luke 4, 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing... Forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 9, Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
When the devil had finished every test, he departed him until an opportune time. So if you're paying attention, this week we're focusing on resisting temptation, resisting the devil. How does Jesus respond to the devil? How does Jesus resist temptation? Well, first of all, I point out that he doesn't resist temptation by arguing with the devil. You see this quote up here, uh, N.T. Wright, great commentator uh, and, a, and scholar, he, in his commentary on this text, he says that when you argue with temptation, it's often a way of playing with the idea until it becomes too attractive to resist. You get that, right? I mean, I think that's something maybe we can connect with. We spend a lot of time trying really hard not to resist something and arguing with the idea, thinking about it too much, and then it overpowers us. So Jesus doesn't spend much time arguing with the devil here. So how does Jesus respond to this temptation? Everybody say it with me. By quoting Scripture. Say it again so I know you're with me. By quoting Scripture. There's nothing special about you saying that. I just wanted to make sure you're still with me. So Jesus responds to the devil by quoting Scripture, and there's three passages that he quotes. The first temptation, Satan says, if you're really the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Well, Jesus responds in Deuteronomy, by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, man shall not live on bread alone. The second temptation, in the order that Luke has it in, is he says, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you just worship me. Jesus responds, Deuteronomy 6, 13, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the third temptation takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and he says, throw yourself down and and then Jesus responds, Deuteronomy 6, 16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So if we just stopped right there and said, how do you resist temptation? We'll quote the Bible. And for me, I'm thinking, well, that would be awesome. If we knew that we were going to be tempted or we were being tempted, if all we had to do was just quote the Bible and it would go away, well, that would be great. I would do that. That's what Jesus does here, right? But it's still, it doesn't seem that simple. From experience, right? Based on experience, when we struggle with temptation, when we give in to sin, it's not as simple as just pulling out your Bible app and what the verse of the day is will just counteract that temptation. So what's the difference between how Jesus quotes Scripture and our own response to temptation? Well, keep in mind this. We have copies of the Bible. I have this copy. I have another in my office and another in my office and several more at home. And, you know, we have the Bible app. We have... Bibles on our iPads and tablets and all that. So we have access to the Bible wherever we want it. But in the first century, when Jesus goes out in the wilderness, he is before the printing press. He probably doesn't have a copy of the Scriptures with him. I doubt that he went to a local synagogue and said, hey, let me check out all the scrolls that you have and lug them out there into the wilderness. But there's a good chance Jesus is out in the wilderness without a copy of the Bible. So he's using Scripture to defend himself against Satan, but how does he know what Scriptures to use? It's not like he says to Satan, hold on real quick, you've tempted me with something, let me go Google it because I think there's a Bible verse that might fit this. But how does Jesus know, without having a copy of the text with him out there, what to quote? It's because he's spent his whole life immersed in Scripture. In my opinion, Jesus has Scripture memorized, so he knows it by his mind, and he knows it by his heart. So that when Satan is tempting him out in the wilderness, it just flows right out of him. 
There's a lesson for us to learn here is that if we want to resist the devil and temptation and being overtaken by the darkness, well, we need to also immerse ourselves in, in God's Word. And one of the things that I appreciate about the restoration movement, a little bit of history of Churches of Christ and where we've come from, is, is our movement has placed a lot of focus on the Word of God. We used to have this old saying, speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent, and the whole movement was based on getting back to what the Bible says. Well, truth be told, we haven't always gotten it right, but I like the emphasis. The emphasis is on placing the Word of God as our driving force, letting God through His Word speak to us. And we got to move beyond, though, just knowledge of the Scriptures and to the point where we're allowing God's Word to transform our church, our lives, and ourselves as individuals. So Jesus is out in the wilderness, and He's quoting Scripture. And maybe you can relate to Jesus here. When He's out in the wilderness, God has already spoken to him in His baptism. He's heard this voice from heaven, but yet the voice of the devil seems really loud. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe there's been times in your own life where you just wish that God would speak and God would say something and God would just tell the devil to be quiet. But it doesn't always seem to work that way. And it doesn't seem to work that way for Jesus out in the wilderness. So what does Jesus do when the voice of the devil just seems so loud when he's out in the wilderness? Well, what Jesus does is he leans back on what God has already said. Jesus holds tightly to what God has already said through His Word. He was so immersed in it, He knew it by mind and heart that it just flowed out of Him. So when the devil's voice seemed really loud, what Jesus did is He held on to what God has already said through His Word. Hopefully there's lessons for all of us to learn here as we struggle with our own temptation in our own life is to look to Jesus as a model to hold tightly to God's Word, to be immersed in God's Word in mind and heart. But you might have noticed by now that Jesus is not the only one in this scenario that quotes Scripture. You know, the way that Luke orders the temptations, a little different than Matthew, they get the second and third temptations reversed. But according to Luke's version of this, the third temptation, Satan's trying to get Jesus to jump off the temple And his argument is Scripture. He quotes Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. And Satan says, it is written. Is it not written that if you do this, God will send his angels to protect you so that you won't dash your foot against a stone? I mean, that's kind of scary, right? That Satan himself knows Scripture, that Satan is using and twisting Scripture out of context and out of its original meaning to try to convince Jesus to do something that he shouldn't do. Or how often does the devil still do that to us today? Well, it's one thing to know Scripture. It's another thing to obey it and to live it and to let it become a part of who you are. And that's where Jesus was in the wilderness, is he didn't fall for Satan's tricks. He didn't fall for this temptation of, of using Scripture. You know, and sometimes people quote Scripture, you're like, well, that's what it says. But Jesus knew how to interpret it. Jesus knew not just Scripture, but the heart of God behind Scripture. And this all reminds me, as we talk about resisting temptation, of something that John Ortberg wrote in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. 
Uh, this book is focused on spiritual discipline, spiritual formation. And he has a section where he talks about the difference between training versus trying. So as we talk about temptation, how many of us have ever said, we know the temptations that we face and we're just like, you know what, I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to use willpower and I'm not going to give in to the temptation. And how does that work for us? Oftentimes, it doesn't. We, like N.T. Wright says, we wrestle with that idea too much to where it becomes irresistible to us. So Ortberg talks about this difference between training versus trying and he uses the example of running a marathon. And he says, say you want to run a marathon. Do you just go sign up and then show up? And then just go try really hard, try your best, and, and give it your best effort? Is that going to work? No, it's not going to work. Trying really hard is only going to get you so far. But if you want to run a marathon, you have to train and discipline yourself over a long period of time to train and to prepare. And the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual life works the same way. Is that spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines is not about trying harder. It's about training wisely. You've heard me in sermons before talking about the importance of spiritual disciplines. Last year in August, I talked about the need for consistent spiritual rhythms in our life so that we can open ourselves up for God to do the work on us that God wants to do. So the purpose of spiritual disciplines, let's take Scripture reading or prayer as an example, is not to show off how many chapters we've read or how often we've read through the Bible or how long we pray each day. All of that is great, but the purpose of the disciplines is not a checklist. It's to open up ourselves up to create space for God to work on us. And that, that is what we see in Jesus in the wilderness. That Jesus has immersed himself in a life of being in God's Word, so much so that he knows it by mind and heart. And Jesus has headed out into the wilderness, guided by the Holy Spirit, with a purpose. His purpose is a spiritual fast, silence, solitude, and prayer. Jesus is opening himself up for God to work on him and prepare him for the next three years as he heads towards the cross. And he does it through these spiritual disciplines, through these spiritual rhythms. Not by just trying harder, but by training wisely. And the same resources that Jesus has in the wilderness are the same God-given resources that we have today, including the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit that led Jesus out into the wilderness. And for those of you who were baptized into Christ, you had that same Holy Spirit working within you. Many years ago, I had been on a few different international flights that were terrifying to me. Uh, we had hit some horrible turbulence, and at one point we were flying on Rwanda air, and we were hitting this turbulence, and I hear people screaming in the plane, and then the plane kind of drops, and I thought that was it. Like, that was a very terrifying moment for me. So after that, I developed the small fear of flying. Not a strong enough fear that I would never get on a plane again, but a strong enough fear that I was, I would admit, I was really nervous to get on the next flight. Well, several years ago, um, I went to the Pepperdine lectureships, and it was the first time since we had been in Africa that I was going to get on a plane. We were flying from Dallas to Los Angeles, and as we got closer to the flight, the, the more nervous I got. I was feeling really uneasy, and I was walking to my seat, getting on the plane, fearing for my life, and I got to my seat, and guess who was sitting beside me? A pilot. 
There was a guy dressed in uniform, a pilot sitting beside me. So I, I started talking to him, and I was like, what are you doing back here? Why aren't you up there? And he's like, well, I'm not flying this this uh, flight, but I, I will fly to L.A. and then pick up a flight and fly from there. So I'm flying to work. And I was like, well, that's cool. Why are you sitting back here and not in first class? And he's like, this is where they put me, which I thought was kind of sad that they don't pay for their pilots to sit in first class. But anyways, I'm glad they didn't. So I sat beside him, and right away that fear of flying had kind of calmed down a little bit. And I, through conversation, I explained to this guy that, all these horrible flights that I had previously and how it had created in me this fear. And when we hit turbulence, you know, there's kind of this instinct that kicks in. So throughout the flight, every time we'd hit turbulence or something out of the ordinary would happen, I would look at him, he would look at me, and he would explain to me what was going on and why I shouldn't worry. And I'm telling you, after that, the fear of flying went away. There was just something about sitting by that pilot and him being able to explain it to him and him being right there next to me. It didn't make any difference other than it just it lowered my guard. It helped me feel confident. And I think about that as I think about Jesus in the wilderness and I think about us facing temptation is just like I had that pilot sitting right next to me, God has given us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And he has given us the same God-given resources that he gave to Jesus to fight temptation. His word, prayer, fasting, silence, solitude, a life connected with God. So that when the tempter comes, we know what scripture to use. When the tempter comes, we know how to resist. But that's not it for Jesus because there will be more temptation to come. And the end of Luke 4 in the section we read in verse 13, it says, When the devil finished his testing... He left until an opportune time, which what Luke is telling us there in this text is that Satan is not done yet. He's going to come back and he's going to regroup. He'll find different ways, whether it's through Judas or someone else, the religious leaders, the Romans, the cross, you know, whatever it may be, Satan will find ways to try to work on Jesus. So the temptation wasn't over, and it's the same for us. We may resist and the devil will flee from us, but we know there will be more temptation to come throughout the stages of life that we are in. And we need to be prepared for that. I came across a quote earlier this week that, that has nothing to do with temptation or the devil, but I actually think it's very fitting, and maybe you'll see the parallel or the comparison. And I want to end or start to wrap it up with this quote. So I'm going to share this with you, read it to you, and, and then you see if you notice why I'm sharing this with you by a guy named Stephen Pressfield. Slay that dragon once, and he will never have power over you again. Yeah, he'll still be there. Yeah, you'll have to duel him every morning. And yeah, he'll still fight just as hard and use just as many nasty tricks as he ever did. But you will have beaten him once, and you will know that you can beat him again. When I read that quote, I thought about Jesus in the wilderness Resisting Satan to the point where Satan leaves. And we know he's going to come back. And he's going to come back and he's going to come back and he's going to keep tempting us. And we know that's going to be a part of our lives. We have nothing to fear. Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness, so the rest of his earthly life, he knew he beat him once and he'll beat him again. And for us, maybe we can gain some confidence in knowing that even though we stumble and we fail, when we start to defeat temptation through the power of God working in our lives, when that temptation comes up again later, we'll know we've already defeated it once 
and it will keep coming. We'll defeat it again. And just like I started this lesson from the song, referencing the song that Tony led in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So we move forward facing temptation with confidence, knowing that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. So this morning, if you find yourself struggling with any kind of temptation and you feel overwhelmed by it, we want to always offer an invitation at the end of the sermon And I'm available to you, and we have some elders. One will be up front with me, and some will be around the room. We just want you to know, if you are struggling and you need to be prayed for, and you want to fight back against the tempter, against Satan, against the powers of darkness, don't leave the room today and then just hide it to yourself. Go find somebody. Spend a few minutes praying. If you've never been baptized into Christ and you want to have that conversation today, please come find one of us and talk to us. We're going to sing a few more songs, and this is a time for you to respond if you need to. I invite you to stand, and we'll continue to sing. To the river I am going.